2: Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia, streamed live via the 3CR website Recent podcasts are also available via 3CR and the Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are on iTunes. I'm Emma Townsend. Thanks for tuning in. Well, I couldn't help but play a little bit of the Pink Panther anthem. When you're out strolling, you know, down your city street, urban or a peri-urban area, which means the outskirts or fringes of the city, do you see the occasional cat or cats wandering? Do you leave a saucer of something out for the cat that visits or do you know someone that does? The Australian Pet Welfare Foundation have done the research And apparently there's about 300,000 cats in a city like Melbourne out there that people feed or kind of look out for but don't consider they own. At the same time, everyone seems to agree that the population of cats in these environments need to be reduced. Some councils have taken such actions as introducing penalties for feeding cats... Uh, councils trap and kill stray, feral, unowned cats. And boy, you you can't turn the internet on these days without noticing the increase of cat rescue and adoption organisations who do an incredible job. Yet none of this is having a desired positive impact on decreasing unowned cat populations in our urban environments, which, which is the nut of the problem. The current trap and kill management control is not reducing these numbers. What it is doing is producing a lot of dead cats and making the sometimes daily work of vet nurses, vets, animal rescue volunteer agencies intolerable at times. And it's not, although many of us would like to believe really helping to protect our wildlife. The Australian Pet Welfare Foundation has been busy compiling research and evidence which can't be ignored and presents us with a fork in the road. If we want to bring these populations down and we're really serious about it through the current Trap and Kill program, we're going to have to spend $100 million, 30% of our GDP in the first year and a half, let alone create further Bucket loads of misery for people having to deal with this issue and the cruelty for the cats. Alternatively, adopting trap-neuter return and cat diversion programs, which have been shown to do the job of reducing these stray cat populations effectively, for mountain loads cheaper. I spoke with Jackie Rand, the founder of the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation, earlier this week. You've got quite a few titles to your name, being an emeritus professor, which means you've you've done a lot of stuff and you've resigned from those positions. Can you give us a rundown of your background?
0: Well, I'm a veterinarian. I graduated in 1975 and I worked in private practice for about eight years and then I went to Canada and did a doctorate and also my specialty training, a residency program in small animal internal medicine. That was then followed by a three-year stint at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. And then I came back to Australia and I was with the University of Queensland for, for 25 years and then retired from there about two years ago to head up the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation because I wanted to make a bigger difference. In
2: saving lives. Can you tell us more about the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation?
0: Yes, Emma, um, with pleasure. The Australian Pet Welfare Foundation is unique in Australia. We're a research, advocacy, and education organisation. And our mission is to improve the health and welfare of companion animals to benefit pets and people. And we do that by creating knowledge through research. And sharing that knowledge with the community, with shelters and pounds, state and local governments, to create change to save lives. So we're about saving pets and we save people's lives too. Because importantly, killing animals impairs the mental health of shelter
2: and pound workers. The discourse around cats at the moment is literally all over the place. They are being demonised at the same time. They are adored. Uh, they, they are pest. They are pet. They are stray. They are feral. Uh, there are ecologists calling for an Australian wildcat to be given their citizenship. But at the same time, we are waging a huge war on cats nationally. Which cat populations are we talking about today, Jackie? Well, I think uh,
0: actually the... Definitions recommended in the recent RSPCA report on identifying best practice in domestic cat management in Australia are the best ones to use and they're supported by the major welfare groups including uh, the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation. So under that classification, Emma, we've got two groups of cats. We've got domestic cats and non-domestic cats. And I'll talk about the non-domestic cats first. These are feral cats, and although they're the same species as domestic cats, they're quite distinct in many ways. They've got no relationship or dependence on humans. And as a practical guide, non-domestic or feral cats are found at least three to five kilometres from the nearest habitation. And... uh, Today, we're not going to talk more about non-domestic or feral cats because I believe their management needs to be with scientists to recommend what are the most effective ways to protect native and endangered species. And those strategies are likely to be location and species dependent. And the second group of cats, which is my focus today, are the domestic cats. And these cats get some food and shelter from humans And we recognise three broad subgroups, although cats can move between those. And that's owned cats, semi-owned cats and unowned cats. And they're usually found within three kilometres, in fact, within about 500 metres of houses and shops and other habitation. So uh, for owned cats, obviously, a uh, specific person perceives that they're the owner and those cats depend directly on humans. They're usually sociable, although (laughs) if you're a cat owner, you know that uh, the sociability can vary quite a bit and depends on who's visiting at the time. (laughs) Then we've got semi-owned cats, which is a really interesting group. These are fed by people and provided sometimes other care, but they don't consider themselves the owner. Again, these cats can be very socialised or they can be rather aloof. And then we've got the unowned group. These cats also depend somewhat on humans. They can be social, but they're often less social. And they sometimes live in groups that are fed by people who do care for them.
2: How prolific are these situations whereby people do not perceive they own these cats as it currently stands, but they still feed or leave a bowl of something out for them? Do we know these statistics?
0: So... Emma, Victorian research shows that uh, 33% of households said they owned a cat and 22% fed a cat regularly or intermittently. They didn't perceive they own it um, and it, they didn't uh, perceive that it was a neighbour's cat. Other research and internet showed, survey in Australia showed that 9% of people who responded fed a cat daily. They didn't perceive they owned. And another survey that I was involved with where we had more men respond, that was 3%. And I think that's probably fairly realistic. About 3% of the population feed daily a cat they don't perceive they own. So we calculate there's about 50 to 100 semi-owned cats per 1,000 residents in Australia. So when we look at that, we're talking about maybe 300,000 in Melbourne and another 300,000 in Sydney.
2: A lot of cats, Emma. A lot of cats, yeah. And a lot of people would judge that as a bad thing to do. But banning the feeding of these cats, in your view, is futile. Can you tell us why?
0: People care for animals and they want to help them if they perceive as a need. And Mm we know from um, research, it's not an expert in, but helping others triggers part of the brain that makes us feel good. And feeding animals makes us feel needed and appreciated. And what I think most councils find that when they try and prosecute these people, they can do that successfully. But usually there's other people who are willing to step in and continue the feeding. So really it's a very futile exercise, which can be extremely expensive, taking people to court and also
2: tracking their movements the status quo presently in how councils deal with issues around the cat population in our urban and peri-urban areas. You call this system a successful harvesting of cats. Can you explain this further for us?
0: Well, you know, we do know that uh, free-roaming cats do cause problems. They're fighting at night, they're soiling in places we don't want them to. For example, a sand pit they can spread disease and, of course, there's the wildlife concern. So councils typically provide traps to people for a cat that is causing a nuisance and they will often lay out traps as well in those situations or in areas where they know there's stray cats. They'll also accept stray cats and kittens that are found by members of the public. But sadly, many of those cats are killed and we've just published a study in the international journal Animals which used the current Victorian data which we analysed And for comparison, Emma, the average euthanasia rate for dogs in Victoria in Victorian Council pounds was eight percent. However, nearly every second cat was killed, and the average for the state was forty eight percent. And a quarter of the councils were killing sixty seven to ninety eight percent of cats. And for some councils that amounted to thousands of cats. So We calculate, however, that we're only removing about 2 to 5% of the urban stray population each year. And those cats are quickly replaced. Research shows that that low-grade killing doesn't work. Um, If you don't believe it, um, look at the New South Wales Council pound data. And uh, when we looked at the data for the last seven years, uh, they've killed 107,000 cats. Has it made any difference to the intake? No. Seven years ago it was about 24,000, still 24,000. So effectively we're sustainably harvesting cats and kittens and ensuring there'll be a population next year out there to uh, uh, trap and kill as well. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference.
2: So replacing um, existing euthanasia as it stands, which actually happens with more adoptions, is not on its own feasible. Can you comment on that?
0: You know, Emma, there's just simply not enough homes and it's not always easy to adopt some of those less socialised cats. They take too long and too many resources for for shelters and councils to socialise and then to adopt them. And there's not enough homes for adoptable
2: cats. So um, that's the issue. We all agree that, the, that a reduction of cat population in our environments is, is the outcome we want here. And a big reason behind that is that we believe they are killing our wildlife. Can you untangle this for us in relation to what research has found out?
0: Emma, clearly cats kill wildlife and it's a very emotive issue for many people. However, it's not clear in urban areas in our cities and towns where the domestic cats are living, in fact, what impact they actually have on the population as a whole of native birds and other animals such as mammals and reptiles. And it's certainly an area which needs more good quality research. But if you actually look at the studies that measure the association between cat density and the density and diversity of mammals, there are very few which actually show a negative effect of cats. However, habitat destruction and density of housing and distance from bushland and the size of that remnant bushland profoundly affects the diversity and density of our native species. And the reason probably why cats may not be having the same profound effect as in some remote and semi-arid areas of Australia is that cats prey in urban areas largely on introduced rodents and we're in the process of publishing a study which shows that pet cats kill overwhelmingly mice followed by rats and then small lizards and common birds such as miners. and we know that rats have a negative effect on the bird population they raid birds nests and uh, kill the eggs or take the eggs. And interestingly, in that study, we also asked uh, people about their, the hunting habits of their dogs. And it was interesting that of dogs and cats that hunt and caught prey, more dogs caught native wildlife than cats. And they tended to be the larger animals, such as possums and blue tongue lizards, whereas the cats caught little skinks and, and geckos. The other compounding issue with trying to estimate from theoretical studies of what cats kill the effect on the population is that people don't realise that the average lifespan of native birds that are susceptible to cat predations between about 2 and 4 years for most of those birds and they're the ones that survive long enough to be banded so that really means that about 33% of the bird population is dying every year from a variety of diseases. And these can be infectious, they can be nutritional, they can be trauma from other birds or from cars. And clearly that proportion and a significant proportion of wildlife that's been caught by cats is likely it would not have gone on to the next breeding cycle. And there's two studies from Europe uh, which show that in both of those studies that birds caught by cats were significantly less healthy than those that were killed by flying into windows and uh, by by being hit by cars. So that's one of the confounding issues in trying to estimate the effect on native bird populations, particularly in urban areas.
2: If we are serious about effectively reducing the urban stray cat population through killing, which is basically what... We've adopted. How many need to be killed, and at what cost? I'm referring to the um, Miller. I think. um Yeah. yeah.
0: So you, the the best paper is that Miller modelling study, and they showed that you need to kill thirty to fifty percent of the cat population every six months for at least ten years. And just to give you a perspective on that, as I mentioned, we estimate there's about three hundred thousand stray cats in Melbourne, and a similar number in Sydney. So we'd have to kill about 200,000 in the first year alone, which would cost about $100 million. And so, you know, clearly that's uh, not feasible and it's about 15 to 20 times more than being currently killed now. And in fact, it's been shown that uh, lower levels of killing doesn't work and a Tasmania study showed that when they only killed 30% a year, It increased cat numbers by two to three times and those numbers subsided to the original levels once they stopped killing and that's because you get migration into the area and increased survival of juveniles.
2: You are on 3CR 855am, the Freedom of Species show Animal Advocacy on the airwaves and we're listening to a chat I had earlier in the week with Jackie Rand, the founder of the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation and they've compiled a lot of research which really challenges the way that we deal with our stray cat populations in many ways it's also quite enlightening to just to be reminded of how much the human human activities are also responsible for, you know, a lot of this fragmentation and the decline in native species when it comes to clearing land on the outskirts of the cities and, you know, building and, you know, that's pretty obvious. Anyway, I think we should take a little break. I'm going to play a song called Alley Cats by Hot Chip. You are on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, Animal Advocacy on the airwaves. We will now go back to the second part of the chat that I had with Jackie Rand, founder of the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation earlier in the week. Jackie, in the first chat that I played before was talking about currently what's going on and how we deal with stray cat populations in our urban and peri-urban environments. Now we come to what the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation advocates for is community cat programs, trap, neuter, return. Can you explain how that works?
0: Yes, Emma, and I think, uh, you know, I truly believe that community-based cat management programs are the way of the future, and they'll address the issues that concern people, whether you love cats or whether you hate cats. It's a humane and scientific way to manage them in urban areas. In fact, it's the only way that's practical. And in community-based cat programs, they're often called TNR programs or track, neuter and return. It's where urban, semi-owned and unowned cats are caught. They're de-sexed and the kittens and friendly adults that can be adopted are adopted, and the less socialised cats that are healthy are returned to their outdoor homes to continue to be cared for by those people who are caring from, for them. So the evidence that it works is uh, two papers from Australia that I've been involved with, those uh, that show that it's very effective in reducing cat numbers when best practices followed and we've shown that CAT numbers decrease by about 30% over two years and 50% in five years, provided it's targeted to an area
2: and best practices followed. So you say it's a targeted approach, which is a component of success. Can you take us through how a TNR system should therefore be rolled out?
0: Yes, so it's very important that councils and shelters look at the suburbs where they've got the most complaints and the most cat admissions and that they target those areas. Typically, they're the most disadvantaged areas in the community where the cost of desexing a cat is a barrier. And from overseas research, it shows that about 60 cats per thousand residents need to be desexed. So it's important that they choose areas where they've got a budget that they can achieve those sorts of levels of desexing. And very often, because they are disadvantaged areas, uh, people will need help with transport to get their uh, cat to the vet to be desexed. Because in most states of Australia, you can't take your cat on public transport. But it's been shown if you provide free and low-cost desexing, you can dramatically decrease the number of cats coming into the shelter and the cats on the ground. So, for example, a Florida study where they desexed 60 cats per 1,000 residents which was estimated to comprise about, in that area, half the stray cat population. And they dissected them over a two-year period and rehomed the adoptable cats. And the intake into the shelter from that targeted postcode decreased from 13 cats per 1,000 residents to four in the two years, and their euthanasia decreased by from eight cats to 0.4. So uh, in the non-target area, the euthanasia was 17
2: times higher. It's impressive, and it's also good to be reminded that it's reality that a lot of in a lot of areas people can't, you know, afford to even desex or cat, or that's it's, it's not even available. So you sort of can't be judgmental on these issues either.
0: Absolutely, and you know, being judgmental doesn't solve the problem. Um, it's looking at what are the solutions. In North America, they've shown that in the very disadvantaged areas, uh, desexing rates are about 10%, but if they provide, they overcome the barriers which are cost and transport um, and education about you know, just the importance of, of uh, reducing euthanasia in shelters and pounds and the impact that has on people that are faced with euthanizing them. Um, if they provide all of those, uh, services, then they can get the desexing rates for cats and dogs up to the average for the nation, which is 90%. Mm. So it's really lack of resources, information resources, low-cost or free desexing and transport.
2: Can we just touch on what cat diversion is? Yes,
0: cat diversion is where cats that are being brought in by members of the public that are stray cats and they're difficult to adopt, and those cats have no identification. So they would be targeted to be euthanized. And if the cats are healthy, which most of them are, they're desexed and they're returned to where they were found. And this is based on research, including some work that we published that showed that most lost cats are usually close to home, and and 75% are within 500 metres, and in fact half of them are within 100 metres of their house. So if they're in good condition, they can be returned because they've got a home there, someone is caring for them, and it dramatically reduces euthanasia in in
2: the shelter. With community cat programs, people think, oh, you're just returning the cat out there, that's mean. I mean, is that a health risk for them to be living out there? Can you comment on that?
0: Yeah, Emma, the research now shows that free-living cats, and particularly ones that are being cared for, but even those that are in what they call unmanaged colonies, have the same welfare as pet cats so based on welfare scores there's no difference and in fact some of our research showed that the cats in colonies that were being managed with TNR they were managed colonies lived as long as uh, pet cats so and there's other research that shows that as well so and when you look at disease incidents amongst urban stray cats they're not significantly less healthy than owned and pet cats.
2: You are on 3CR 8:55 a.m., The Freedom of Species Show, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We're speaking with Jackie Rand from the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation, which advocates for community cat programs which includes trap-neuter-return and cat diversion. By trapping, neutering and returning cats that cannot be adopted out to where they were found, this seems to be the way forward in decreasing cat populations in peri-urban and urban areas. That is, you know, the, the outer fringe of our cities as well as in our cities. An important consequence of bringing cat populations down in our environment is this will decrease the very high euthanasia rates Uh, which many of our animal hospitals' shelters and pounds have. I've spoken with vets and vet nurses, healthcare officers, about euthanasia in their workplace environment. And even when they are having to euthanise a cat that has been loved all his or her life, that's a really intense uh, experience for all involved. The intense experience is not diminished when countless I've heard by the bucket load at times daily, mostly healthy cats and kittens are killed, euthanised. Just a warning, the following information can be quite distressing. If you need assistance, there is Lifeline on three triple one four.
1: Oh, as you can imagine, it's awful. These young, healthy animals, where there's really nothing wrong with them whatsoever, and there's just there's nowhere to put them, there's nowhere for them to go, there's no home. So one by one, we have to euthanise them and then to see them all lying there, passed away, and then putting them into a bag and then disposing of them is awful. It's it's sad, like I often see nurses in tears. It takes its toll, definitely, and we have counselling offered at our work. It's very sad. Euthanasia has its place, definitely, when we are euthanizing animals that are suffering. But when we have to euthanize animals because people haven't done the right thing by dissecting their animals, and cats breed very quickly and often produce seven, eight kittens, and if those kittens are released, which they often are, they will turn wild. And often when we receive them, we do foster out a lot of kittens and we can tame a lot of them, but unfortunately a lot of the time the shelters just don't have the room or the finances or the time to help these animals. So unfortunately they are euthanized, which does take a toll on the staff, definitely. People will find a litter of kittens in their yard or under their house And they bring them in and they want to know what's going to happen to them. And it's hard because you might know already that unfortunately we have no more room. You know, we've rung around to other cat societies and they've got no room. And you know that they're going to be euthanized. And to have to tell the people that we'll do our best, but there is a chance that, unfortunately, they will be euthanised because there's nowhere to put them.
2: Is this a weekly... And that's
1: the only reason we're euthanising them, which is just horrible because those kittens have done nothing wrong.
2: Is this like a weekly event? Um, In kitten season, yes. It's
1: daily. Often I, you know, see a vet or a nurse say... Can someone else do this euthanasia? I've already done
2: five today. In these days of increasing mental health awareness, the implications and the improvements that need to be made for those that work in the fields of animal health, and people don't realise the intensity of euthanising so many individual lives, you know, every week, let alone every day, it uh, has a very serious toll on these people. Can you comment on that for us more?
0: Yes, Emma, and I think, you know, that's the tragic side that is rarely spoken about. And yet we've demonised cats in Australia. But no one's talking about whether killing that cat will actually damage someone. And what we do know from Australian research, that many of the people directly involved with euthanasia of animals that develop a form of post-traumatic stress. And uh, it leads to mental health problems and it increases the risk of suicide. And uh, I was talking to an ex-shelter vet and what she said to me was, I've seen so many people's lives damaged by having to kill a never-ending stream of kittens and cats. And another person who was not directly involved with killing, she was involved with cleaning cages and she said that whenever she saw... The, the, cat, the dead cat's been taken out to the freezer. She used to go out to the parking lot and vomit. And the sad thing is that, in fact, what's been shown now in North America is that the suicide rate for the animal rescue sector has now reached number one spot along with policemen and firemen.
2: So killing animals
0: damages people's lives and sometimes dramatically
2: and seriously. Yeah, that's, Wow. Yep. If anyone has found that information has triggered very uncomfortable feelings and is too distressing, please contact Lifeline on one three triple one four I'm just wondering with the the larger animal welfare organisations uh, RSPCA and Australian Veterinary Association, I wonder if you'd like to comment on why they're still hesitant to support uh, trap neuter return programs and and why you think this is so.
0: Actually, the RSPCA, in their recent report, which was titled Identifying Best Practice in Domestic Cat Management in Australia, are recommending that research be conducted in urban areas of Australia to determine where it's most effective. And what they do say is that killing doesn't work. And uh, we know that. The Australian Veterinary Association doesn't yet support this method of cat management because they are basing their policy on outdated research. But the good news, Emma, is that they have nominated a representative to be on the steering committee for the research trial that we're in advanced stages of planning. So I think changes will occur. There's been a lot of research published in the last 18 months, which now we much better understand where TNR works and where it doesn't work. And it's clear that you have to have high desexing levels, um, particularly for the female cats. It needs to be targeted. And where you uh, you will get immigrant cats coming in, you'll get some owned cats moving in and unowned cats moving into an area. And the important thing is that they're managed the same way. So the friendly ones are rapidly adopted. The less socialized ones are rapidly desexed before they produce kittens. But if you manage it like that, the research now shows it's highly effective, far more cost effective because it's supported by the community where you basing it on trap-and-kill programs, then the costs are all the government, all the council costs. And in fact, notably, there's not been a single study published from a Western country that shows that a large-scale trap-and-kill, even on a postcode level, has been successful because the community won't support it. So we can keep doing what we're doing, which is nothing, and we'll have the same number of cats and the same complaints next year, and the same number of euthanasias and people being damaged, or we can accept what science is telling us and implement humane and scientific management of cats in urban areas.
2: Jackie, a big part of it then is in these areas, you've actually got the community of people involved as well, so you're reliant with TNR for people to be involved. What can we do as individuals? to encourage or support these programs in in our areas?
0: Yeah, firstly, I think it's important that there's transparency in councils in the number of cats they're taking in and the outcomes they're achieving for them. And I think many people would be shocked to find out how many are being killed in their council area. They'd also be shocked to know that if the mother cat is deemed feral based on behaviour in a trap cage, and we know that, pet cats will respond with more feral behaviours than stray cats, and they're often killed that same day in the trap cage. High numbers will be killed, and the kittens are often deemed feral as well and killed even if they could be adopted. So I think transparency in Victoria is the only state where most of the councils provide their data on income, coming animals that are coming into their council area, into their pound or to the shelters and what the outcomes are. No other state you can find that. And so I do think that transparency will help to drive change. But then we need to clearly invest in uh, desexing programs that are targeted to areas of high intake and euthanasia, of owned, semi-owned and unowned cats. And we need to also have programs that will encourage semi-owners to consider taking ownership and having the cat desexed and microchipped with their name as the primary care on the database. And research shows that although there's a cost of implementation of these desexing programs, with time, it saves lots of money. And in fact, more resources can be then devoted to dogs, which also increases the live release rate for dogs and shelters. So it's cost effective. And we actually have a transformational project that i believe will revolutionize cat management in urban areas by showing that on a suburb basis on a um, postcode basis where it's targeted to areas of issues with cats that we can get effective cat control and the communities behind it so they'll provide a lot of the labor needs to be managed obviously and best practice followed so if anyone's interested in that study they can contact us. We believe that it's the key to getting Australia to zero euthanasia of healthy and treatable cats in our shelters and towns and we're hoping to get an ARC linkage grant but our barrier is to find half of that funding so we're looking for supporters, uh, organisations and potentially individuals and the amount of money we're looking at is uh, 400000 over five years so it's going to be a, a large project. We've got the Animal Welfare League, the RSPCA, Biosecurity Queensland, now the AVA and uh, on the steering committee to help move this forward. So then we've got Green Cross as well have just joined in this. So we're looking to find organisations about six to eight that will each contribute about fifty to 100,000 a year for this too to actually become reality.
2: You would think um, that the economic costs that you talk about there surely is probably less than what governments would be spending anyway in the next few years under the status quo system.
0: Yes, I do believe it is. And obviously in the first year or so there is more of a cost of implementation. But when I see, so for example, in Brisbane City Council where they've estimated they're spending about 300000 a year on um, their cat trapping program plus trying to uh, stop people feeding cats. And that, that's not including the cost of the cats coming into the, the pound. If they had spent 300000 a year over the last five years, we would have very, very low numbers of cats, very low numbers coming into the pound. And I think it would, we would be protecting wildlife much better than what a a trapping program
2: has got the capacity to do. Thank you so much for the generosity of your time, Jackie, and it's so much illuminating information.
0: You're welcome, Emma. It's a delight to talk to you, and thank you very much for inviting me on the show.
2: Just the movement. You are on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show. And that was a, a little of a tune called Resilient by Appalachia Rising, which we played straight after the completion of our interview with Jackie Rand from the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation. They have a heap of evidence around trap-need return and cat diversion programs so please visit their website, Australian Pet Welfare Foundation. There's a lot of information there. And please find out about your local pound and shelter. What, what does your council do with the, with the stray cats? Maybe you can get involved there somehow. Okay, we've got some news and a community service announcement. So I, I'm going to read from the Oscars Law actual Facebook page. We've all heard the news that new laws uh, started taking effect from Sunday, banning the sale of puppies and kittens in, in pet shops. It's actually phase one of legislation to smash the puppy farm business model. Puppy farm legislation is a state issue and each state government is responsible for amending and introducing their own laws. So unfortunately it isn't possible to introduce a federal law to ban puppy factories and the sale of puppies and kittens in pet shops. Oscar's Law wanted to happen in all states. They've been campaigning across the country heavily for years. The Victorian Labor government is the first state government to come to the table and support their campaign, but they're not finished yet. Oscar's Law are in a consultation process with the Labor government in Western Australia who are looking into implementing the same laws, which is great. They've also Oscar's Law has also received a commitment from Labor in New South Wales. However, sadly, they are in opposition at the moment and the Liberal government are not interested at all. Oscar's Law also said the Queensland Labor government are not interested in this legislation, but they'll continue to lobby them. Obviously, it is an election year, but Oscar Law has been working with the Victorian Labor Government since 2014 to get this implemented. The laws passed last year, and the only reason they took this long is because the Liberals and Nationals did all they could to block them, which is interesting, and they want to overturn these laws as well. So don't forget that bit of information when you're going to the polling booth this year, or thinking about who to vote for, I guess. Pet stores can have rescues, rescue cats and dogs up for adoption. So that is part of the legislation. And they'll work with approved shelters and rescue groups to hold adoption days in store. And you can always check, you know, confirm with the group if it's to make sure it's legitimate. Uh, Online sales. So it's important to remember that the pet store ban is only phase one of this legislation. This time next year, there is a pet exchange register which will be implemented and it will make it apparently impossible for puppy farmers to hide behind flashy websites and deceive consumers through sites like Gumtree, Trading Post and Facebook. And how that will happen is that... The pet exchange register means that anyone advertising a cat or a dog for sale or anyone who is giving away a cat or dog will be required to enrol on the register and obtain a source number which will be linked to the microchip of that animal. Now I did read the Australian Veterinary Association media release which was actually the end of last year but the AVA President Dr Paula Parker commented in this media release that they are... Optimistic that the traceability of cats and dogs will be improved by the Pet Exchange Register. And they did further say the key now is for the government to commit to providing additional resources to ensure that the legislation will be enforced. So it's great though. I mean, the Pet Exchange Register and cap on breeding dogs, actually the amount of female uh, breeding dogs that you can have, are also part of the legislation. So this will help to combat backyard breeding whilst also smashing the puppy farming business model. So jump onto the Oscars Law Facebook page or website for more information because they they, um, keep it updated there, which is great. Thank you, Oscars Law. Okay, to the community service announcement part of today's show. I've got one event today. The Sydney Fox and Dingo Rescue organization they're having a Foxmas in July as we know Christmas in July events are becoming very popular they're having a Foxmas in July event at the Goulburn Club so this is for Sydney ciders and um, they've unashamedly kind of blended into their ad here for the event lots of tricky little tongue twisters so anyway here we go for a fur fantastic three-course feast to celebrate Foxmas in July, jump on their Facebook page July 28th at the Golden Club in Sydney. There will be pawsome entertainment for the event. It will feature a variety of cool cats performing cabaret-style acts throughout the night. Uh, dinner is nothing to be sniffed at and will consist of a sit-down three-course feast, all plant-based. Sounds beautiful. Mm, Yum. They kind of go on to... I'm losing myself. I haven't had my lunch and I'm just reading about the menu for the night. Yum. Pumpkin tartlets and stuffed mushrooms. A seat and roast with stuffing. In inverted commas, beef wellington. So a vegan beef wellington. So cooked roast veggies, and gravy, winter apple crumble and hazelnut pudding to follow. Yum. That's enough to get on the plane and get there. So all funds raised on that night will, an unforgettable night, mind you, they put, will go toward supporting Sydney Fox and Dingo in their 2018 fire evacuation plan, which will include a 24-bay animal transport caravan, which is fantastic because we all know when we hear about the tragedy of um, bushfires and evacuation plans, uh, more and more people are getting much more conscious that and uh, trying to also facilitate ways in which we can take our animals with us because they're loving members of the family. So that's great. Please support them. Sydney Fox and Dingo Rescue. All right, I better skedaddle because in psychedelia is coming up and sounds like a great one. They've got a sound therapist coming up. That's what I understand. Someone who's working with sound therapy and also... Ash has been over in Warsaw, I think, at a nicotine conference. So that sounds all really interesting. So if you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, via Facebook or uh, the website. Uh, We'll be back next week. Adam Cardellini will be in the chair. Thank you so much, Jackie Rand, again. Thank you so much to all the musicians who allow us to play their music on air including Appalucha Rising and Hot Chip. Okay, have a great week. Taking us out is a tune by Caravana Sun.